Welcome back to This Food Thing podcast and season three with me, Gemma Richards. As before, I invite a special guest to share their experience with food, namely friend or foe, whether it is easy or less so. In light of the first two seasons, it appears to be foe for many, as it was for me. But this doesn't have to always be. Exciting news. We've started a crowdfunder for the podcast and to help fund anyone suffering with an eating disorder unable to afford one-to-one therapy. Check the link in our show notes, donate, leave a review. We're always so grateful. Because you know if this area of your life is skewed, then so is the rest. It's never just about food. Hi, welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Eve Simmons. Eve is the Deputy Health Editor at The Mail on Sunday and editor of Not Plant Based website, a community that celebrates all food and supports people with eating disorders, helping them to eat in peace. I became aware of Eve when I read her tribute part expose to her late friend, Cecilia Phillips, who sadly lost her battle against anorexia earlier this year. Eve is currently working on her second book, which will dig deep into the patriarchy's effects on the female appetite. Bedtime reading for me and my husband, Eve, or maybe just him. Welcome to this Food Thing podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Well, I think that you're actually talking to us on your lunch break, aren't you? So um, I'm very grateful for that. I am. Well, something like that. I mean, I don't get much of a much of a break, but it's a it's yeah, it's a it's a nice distraction from um, from all the rubbish COVID stuff that's going on. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. well, let's let's crack on then. Let's dive in. My first my only question is uh, food, food, friend or foe. How is it for you? Oh, that's it's a very big question, isn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. I'd say right now, food is very much a friend. Okay. Um, very good friend. We are, um, yeah, we're, we're, we, we kind of care about each other and we um, use each other and, um, or consume each other in a very healthy and um, uh, restorative way. I would How say. long has it been like that for? Um, best part of, I would say, about seven, about nine months now, I would say, about nine oh. months. Oh, gestation period. Wow. Okay. And what was going on before then? So before then, uh, so I, you'd kind of have to to rewind right back. So I, um, I was diagnosed with anorexia about six years ago. Um, and it was, it was a very quick descent into the illness. So I'd, I'd never had any problems with food before I was brought up an incredibly kind of, uh, loving and great environment with lots of food on the table, various family holidays and get togethers and whatever and I loved it and I had a great appetite and I never worried about diets or anything like that yeah um and then uh kind of very suddenly I at the age of 22 I went into my first job which was in the fashion industry um and sort of out of nowhere well I say out of nowhere but kind of looking back now and after hours and hours of therapy I know it wasn't necessarily from nowhere but um I started to, uh, to to think more about what I was eating and to be healthier and make healthier choices. But actually what that meant was I wanted to restrict my, my intake to control the food that I was eating. Um, it, not necessarily to control my body, but I guess to give myself, myself some sense of stability in my life where lots of different things were happening and I didn't feel very stable at the time. Uh, food became a kind of focus, I guess, and a distraction from things in my life that I wasn't sure about. Did you feel, um, did you feel very anxious? Yes. And yes. overwhelmed? Yes. I'd always, so the one thing that I, the kind of running theme, I guess, was anxiety. Mm. I'd always 
even though I'd never had a problem with food, I'd always had a problem with anxiety. Uh, how did you, sorry to overtalk you right there, but just um, in case we get lost, how did you deal with your anxiety before? Um, not very well. I had, as <laughs> <laughs> the answer. Um, do, do you know what? It came in kind of bouts. Um, I had a very severe sort of sudden bout when I was about 15 that came on almost overnight. Um, and I had all sorts of kind of like strange otherworldly worries that just came, came from completely from, no, from nowhere based on nothing. Were you an anxious child? Um, I was a very shy child. Ah, so, okay. So I wasn't very comfortable in my own skin. And I also kind of looking back, I know kind of, you, you know, you piece the, the bits together, don't you? And yeah, you do. I, I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. And I also went to a school where all of, it was a girls' school and all of the girls were very different from me. So I always had this sense that I was different. Okay. Um, and I didn't fit in. And okay. I was always kind of striving to be quote unquote normal. I also, I guess a big part of this, which I realise now, um, my father had cancer from when I was about six, was very sick with cancer and died when I was, uh, 12, four days before my 13th birthday. Oh, wow. And I think, I mean, I've kind of gone back and forth with it. And a lot, a lot of the time mm. I've thought, oh, it's really has, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, well, you developed an eating disorder because your dad died. And that's why, you know, you were traumatized and blah, blah, blah. But I actually think it's not as simple as that. And yeah. just as I did develop anorexia, I could have, easily not have developed anorexia sure, sure. so um but I do think that that growing up with somebody who was very sick and never knowing what was going to happen definitely played into my anxiety it made me feel different and not quite sure about what was going to happen and scared I guess this kind of underlying sense of impending doom which a lot of people with who have anxiety will understand I think there's something about anxiety as well because I can relate to that that when you're actually in that anxious state mm. and the the adrenaline's running wild, isn't it? And everything's very frothy and dramatic and hyper. It, it's kind of handable, handable, can't say that word. Um, but then when the anxiety's gone, you're left with this awful flatness mm. and, and nothing. And that's then anxious making, isn't it? Yeah. Because that's I, that new feeling of, and you don't know what it is, particularly when you're younger. I think there's the kind of what happens is that, as you said, the kind of Physical, the physicality of anxiety uh, dissipates after a while naturally. And then yeah. so you don't have the physical symptoms, but you've got this kind of residual thought pattern, which is like really overthinking everything and yeah. kind of going over every single little detail about the things that you're anxious about. And you're kind of, I always think of it, it's like a, a fire catching, like you're catching on things yeah. that um, a bit like a Venus flytrap on things yeah. that you would never even pay attention to, but you're looking for things to be anxious about, but you don't have the physical kind of surge to, I guess, uh, I think sometimes that distracts from a low mood or distracts from making mm -hmm. you really realize that you're, you're worried about things. A hundred percent. Do you know where I'm fascinated about where feelings reside in the body and how they feel and what they look like as in, if you were to personify them, but do you know where your feelings sat or mm. sit in, or, within you yeah kind of traditionally in my um upper stomach okay <laughs> yes. kind of yeah kind You're of so between my esophagus at the bottom of my esophag esophagus and right. my stomach is where I imagine it to be and I get this kind of tightness in my chest do you know what um, it looked like um 
I imagine that my insides are all like tangled. Wow. <laughs> and like being pulled really tightly. Wow. That's kind of what what it felt like. But interestingly, the eating disorder kind of overtook all of that. But now looking back, it felt like it was something totally separate to my anxiety. But looking back, of course, when you're thinking about food all the time, it's the same thing. It's you're anxious, you're thinking about, you're scared, you're terrified of something that is is nonsensical and is not going to happen and is imaginary. And that was exactly what my anxiety was when I was 15, 16. Um, Do you think when you were starving yourself, because you mentioned mm. it was anorexia that mm. you went into, mm. do you think you were trying to, um, on one level, not necessarily conscious, that you were trying to starve the tangles and, you mm. know, reduce them and flatten them and and in some way just un- untie that knot by diminishing it, by reducing it? I think, I don't think it was as physical as that because at that point I wasn't particularly anxious, I guess. I think it was, it was more, to be honest, it started out as a kind of focus on something because I was at a time in my life where I'd, I was living at home, but I had a, my first serious relationship and I was staying at his a lot. And so I wasn't sure if I wanted to be at home. I was I was an adult and for the first time kind of really getting myself together out of uni and whatever and, and starting my career and all the rest of it. And I, and I guess I sort of was struggling with that like child, adolescent, adult transition. And Um, the fashion industry is very exposing, isn't it? And it's all about how you look. And exactly added to that. I then was kind of bit at that period of my life where I was a bit unstable in in my identity, I guess, and who I yeah. was and what I wanted to be. And I'm thrown into this world where there are rules for how you should be. For sure. Um, and those rules are very physical uh, and behavioural. So, you know, if you're in fashion, you don't eat. Yeah. Um, you certainly don't eat breakfast. <laughs> certainly um, not. And you survive mostly on Diet Coke. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, at first I saw that because I had a real strong sense of what healthy eating was, as in what, you know, un- how not eating was unhealthy. Right. Um, I looked at all the people around me who were doing that. And at first my reaction was to kind of scoff and laugh at them and think, oh, God, how ridiculous. It's so fashion. It's so stereotypical. Yeah. And then I think it's probably an indication of how unsure I was within myself that I then very subtly gravitated towards that and started playing out the behaviours that I was ridiculing. Do you think you were, there was also a kind of reenactment of the the others at school? Mm, Yeah, definitely. I think it was a kind of like, I'd always felt that I was different and felt that there was something not wrong with me but that you know I didn't fit in there and but but I yeah. wanted to prove that I could be kind of cool I could be a cool girl you know I could For be sure. normal and like everyone else and so I guess from my kind of when I got to 16 I went to a sixth form college um and so it was completely different but I, I went with my best friend who I'd been friends with since I was five who didn't go to my secondary school um and she was the person I felt more comfortable with than anyone else yeah. and we went to college together and it was when I finally kind of really came into my own and felt comfortable with myself and you know and I'm sure you know most teenage girls go through that they get through to a stage and maybe it's they get a new job you know a supermarket or whatever or they get something and everything sort of falls into place and for the first time they feel that they get a sense of who they they really are and they can be who they are yeah um and I sort of you know really kind of that was when I, I got on that path to feeling better about myself and not so different I guess and found the people who were really my my tribe um who were still my tribe um 
And uh, and then I think carrying on from that, since then I'd always been on that kind of path to try and get there, but was always a little bit behind. And then I think there were things that kind of kicked me off, like I went to university and I had quite a difficult time. I lived with some people who I didn't get on with very well and there was quite a lot of arguments and my the girl that I was very good friends with who I went to uni with who I knew from before uni turned out turned out to be very toxic and we had a very toxic relationship right and, um, right all sorts of kind of complicated things and I think that made me a bit more unsure and, and anxious and I had an anxious period at, at uni as well and so I think when I by the time I left and then went on to my master's course which was after university which was where I developed well after that I developed my eating disorders quite soon afterwards I'd got to that kind of got back to my kind of comfortable self okay. but I was still figuring it out and I guess part of that was me being okay well maybe I'm fashion girl right okay um, so yeah. so yeah I'm I'm I can prove to everyone that I did I think there probably was a bit of that but you know I am like everyone else or you know people from uni or from school will see me and think oh she's doing really well look at her she's really cool she's like in fashion and she looks great and she's wearing sure. fancy clothes and blah 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 yeah 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 she's she's living it mm. so it it sounds as though it, it sounds as it wasn't competitive for you it's very much about fitting in and being one of the gang one of the tribe yeah I think it was that but I think it was for myself more than anyone else. I don't know. It was really strange. I, I always think it's very atypical, my descent into anorexia. It is, um, yeah. Because there was a couple of girls in the, the office who were kind of all about fashion. And when, once I decided that my thing was going to be fashion, I guess, it was like, you know, it, it was almost very... Um, I don't know how to describe it, but I, it was very practical, really. I, I stopped eating breakfast, basically, because I noticed that no one else who was... So my, I had an editor yeah. at the time who I was obsessed with, who I thought was wonderful. Right. Um, and I wanted to be like her. I wanted to be as successful as her. I wanted to do everything that she did. I thought her everything she wrote was like gold. And Okay. Did she um, have an eating disorder that you knew about? Not that I knew about. Okay. But she didn't eat much. That okay. was quite obvious. <laughs> right. That okay. was quite obvious. And I guess from kind of uni until that point, I'd, I'd been, because of, I'm naturally quite self-conscious, I'd been kind of more conscious of what I ate, I guess, and my body shape, but not uh -huh. to the extent that I would ever deny myself anything. So I think the probably normal, I hate to say normal because it shouldn't be normal, but the normal kind of neuroses that most teenage and young adult women have so you know I tried to go to the gym and I'd try and make sure that I had a healthy breakfast and I if I ate a lot of ice cream on the weekend the next day I'd think well maybe I should probably not have ice cream today but then probably would have the ice cream anyway yeah it was that kind of thing okay um and then and then then so I I thought oh well I won't have breakfast because no one's really having breakfast and then quickly I would go to fashion events and I remember going to a runway show it was my first runway show and like all the models were I mean hideously yeah. unwell yeah hideously yeah, yeah. unwell criminal it was just yeah disgusting that you know this would could be classed as aspirational sure um and as I know now many of them probably are very sick and collapsed quite soon after they got yeah. the runway but anyway yeah um and I remember thinking that's awful but also there was a kind of 
perverse interest in this world and am I in this world now and does that mean that I it's like it's kind of normalized I guess that you know this is just the way that girls look in this industry and that's just the way that it is and you do that by not eating very much um so it's almost like a habit I guess it was a kind of a game like a thing I tried to do not eat very much get very thin see what happens that's very interesting that you talk about it in in the in the realm of it being habitual and, mm. and a habit and something that you practice we're going to take a little quick break and we'll be back in a moment you're listening to this food thing with me Gemma Richards Hi, welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Eve Simmons, and we're just talking about anorexia being a habit. And it's something that I've... Oh, there's a phone. Sorry. No, it's cool. It's cool. I had an email that came in as well. I'm like, oh, it's so professional. It's on silent now. Is it? And I don't know who that person is. That's a really important job offer or something, or something brilliant. I very much doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah eating disorders as as like a habit or a practice uh, which isn't something that everybody mentions so and also because as you said it's atypical that you descended quickly into anorexia so can you talk about that a little bit more yeah sure so um we're at the models we're at the we're we're at the runway okay right everyone looks fabulous but they're not Um, very well yes uh I remember it well um yeah, so I, I, it started off with breakfast. So I started just having, um, I would always have from the age of like 15, I always had porridge every morning with blueberries. That was my yeah. favorite breakfast. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was, I'm very much and always have been a, a creature of habit. So um, uh, that's, yeah, what I would have every day. And then um, I realized that no one else ate breakfast. And also I started getting in quite early because I was very keen to prove myself at work. Okay, yeah, to the editor. Like, yeah. yeah, I was on probably about 5p a day or something. Sure, and, that much. Uh, getting home at 9 o'clock at night. Yeah, maybe wow. it was £50 a day, to be fair. £50 wow. a day, I think it was. Not enough. No, and I'm lucky because I live at home. Anyway, that's okay. a whole other podcast. But yeah, um, <laughs> so, uh, well, I lived at home, I should say. Okay. Um, so I uh, started just having blueberries because um, I'd get in early and I'd think, oh, I can't bother to make my porridge, so just have blueberries. Um, and then it would get to lunchtime and instead of having the kind of, you know, really enjoying going out and picking what I would have for lunch. Um, I think also part of this that played into this was I didn't have a lot of money. And I think that's a huge thing with anorexia that often isn't looked at enough. Um, that those two things, the kind of financial anxiety and the, the eating disorder play into each other massively. Yeah. The frugality of it. Mm, yeah. It kind of, um, well, it gives you permission, doesn't, doesn't it? it? Absolutely. Justify. Yeah yeah not not having um so yeah then that kind of play those things played into each other a lot and so I then went from having the lunch that I wanted to having you know just some I decided well if I have some leaves and maybe you know an egg pot then I'm only spending a few pounds and um and and it's very healthy and I might lose weight kind of thing um and then very quickly the game so it was it was almost like pushing myself a bit more a bit more well can you can you not have what if you just didn't have lunch at all this week that you know today and what if you right. just didn't have lunch at all for the rest of the week right um and then it got to a stage where I would do that so that I could have a big dinner with my boy then boyfriend um and we would go out for like lots of fancy meals and it was all kind of new experiences. It was things that I'd never really done before. I'd never had this serious relationship and I've never had a relationship where we would be kind of going out for fancy dinners. Um, 
and it was always kind of through courses and we enjoyed it and loved it but I was always conscious that oh it's a lot of food and how am I going to kind of you know if I'm eating throughout the day I also had this thing about it was also the first time that I'd had a job I was just sitting down for the whole day and I was conscious of that but I'm not exercising I'm not moving I'm not having time to go to the gym and that kind of played into my anxieties a bit and so all of these things I guess kind of compiled to make this habit much more the motivation to maintain this habit was much greater so did you Um, start to reduce your portion size in the evening at first no it was kind of almost like a domino effect like one thing went after the other at first no it was like I'll pretty much starve myself most of the day or have next to nothing because I know I'm going out for a big dinner and then I can really enjoy that and I really would and it meant that my boyfriend thought I was eating fine basically you know Yes, yeah. you can see I was losing weight, but thought, well, I can see she's still got her appetite because we're still enjoying dinners and blah, blah, blah. And it would also, that would play into the weekend. So the week I would kind of be really good. And then yeah. at the weekend, I could kind of have what I wanted. So at that point, I mean, I would say that's still hugely disordered, but at least I was able to control it. I was able to, to stop and start when I wanted to. So and did then, something happen to pivot you completely, of course, or was it just a continuation well now I know the way that that the kind of neurobiological elements of eating disorders work Mm. and mechanisms I Mm. know that I must have got to a weight where my cognition was such that it was self-perpetuating so it became more compulsive uh, a lot more anxiety around food um I I then started eating smaller portions in the evening um I remember there was one evening where I was meeting my, my then boyfriend Will at um, a restaurant and I hadn't eaten all day and I remember turning up and kind of thinking I was going to faint and seeing spots and feeling sick. Yeah. Uh, and then I remember when the food came, I, I, I was worried about eating all of it. I was anxious and so I left some, even though I knew that physically I, I probably should because I'm not well. Right. Um, so by that point, I probably lost quite a lot of weight and that's when my mum because I was still living at home because she would my, I'm from a Jewish family and the kind of you know I guess it's a bit of a trope isn't it but but mm. very st- stereotypical way that Jewish mothers are is that they always think that their children are too thin sure um and that their children need to eat more. sure yeah so um I'd been brought up with a mother who was always trying to you know stuff a cheese sandwich down my face <laughs> in a non-weird way yes. um, and so when she started saying oh you're looking a bit thin I'd think oh, shut up mum you know that's right. just my mum um which she did start saying very early on because obviously she's my mum and she saw me every day yeah um but then it was when I kind of started coming home from work and she would say I've made dinner and I would say oh I've already eaten or I'd kind of escape up to my room and she says that there was a very distinct behavior change at some point and I'd right. say that was probably probably about three months into my new game how did um, you uh, clearly you were feeling anxious mm, what what else were you feeling as you restricted your food and didn't eat and were getting thinner and thinner there must have been a great payoff uh, do you know what I don't even know if there was I think really? it was just I think for a little while, maybe for a little while, I thought, oh, I'm thin. Did you feel successful? Um, I felt that I, that I fitted into a, um, I felt trendy, I guess. Oh, okay. 
I felt a bit kind of this cool. is what this yeah this you like, felt cool like a cool girl, girl group yeah I was part of the cool girl group I guess for a bit um but it but it to be honest it, it was it was my my I had laser focus and that was the eating it was an eating disorder at that point and so the yeah. only thing I could really focus on was what I was going to eat every day and how could I make sure that I had controlled my my meals in the day so that I can eat what I want in the evening and then it became how can I control my meal in the evening so that I don't feel bad um or like I've kind of offset my habit or whatever did you Um, get to a point where you didn't eat anything at all no I never got to that point I was always eating something but it would but you know it would be vegetables okay um and you never you you never over it and threw up no no, that was never my... That's so interesting, isn't it? So I'm mm. just, before we go on, did mm. anyone at work notice? Did your editor notice? Um, no, my... I think there were kind of comments like, oh, you're so tiny, you're so little, you're so tiny type mm. thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the editors said something to me like, oh, we're a bit worried about you, you don't look well. Mm. Um, but actually I think, and this is the thing with anorexia that I always kind of try and shout from the rooftops is that I think sometimes for obvious reasons, understandably, people around that person are so worried about saying the wrong thing that they don't say anything. And actually for people with anorexia, you are never going to think that you are sick enough. Never. And, and actually sometimes for me anyway, the thing that really made me realize that I wasn't well was when people who I loved more than anything around me started saying they were worried about me. Oh, um, so you, did you actually hear that? Yeah, but, but for ages. So my, my, I've got a very, very close circle of best friends. My mum, my mum obviously was saying things for a while. Um, and I kind of, I, I mean, I was in denial massively, but I, I ignored it. I just ignored it. Um, but it was, my best friends I saw still quite a lot as much as I kind of did before really and and none of them ever said anything really it was it was always a kind of like let's not talk about it maybe something's not quite right not sure but no one really explicitly said anything and then it was my birthday and it was my mum the day before we'd had a big talk and my mum had said I want you to start eating and I because I kept saying I'm going to start eating I'm going to eat more I know I know I'm thin I'm going to eat more I know I'm thin and of course when I tried to I just couldn't I couldn't do it Mm. um and that's when it becomes it's a it's a habit formation and so you you physically you know it's physically very difficult to break that habit and that had kind of set in my mind and I was at that point then um um my mum had said, I want you to try and eat. And I said, I'm going to try. And it was my birthday. And she'd gone out and bought me like five different cakes and uh, yeah. lots of different snacks and said, look, if what you little snacks and all you have to do is have one of them a day. And, and I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I know, mum. I, I, and I think I cried. And I said, I'm, I realise that I'm not well. And yeah. I need to try and, and sort it out. I, I think I'd gone to the doctors a week before, actually, because I had back pain. Right. And the doctor had said to me, take off your jumper. And I took off my jumper and he said, I saw he kind of visibly winced when he looked at me. And I think that was wow. the first time that I thought, okay, maybe I'm not well. And that wow. scared me. Um, and he tried to take my blood pressure and the machine wouldn't work because my arm was too small. 
Um, wow. And and so he kind of said, I'm worried about you. And that I, I remember walking home crying and thinking, oh, God, like somebody's worried about me. So that really kind of kick-started me thinking, okay, maybe something's not right. But the, the biggest thing was when I was at my birthday and a friend of mine came who was one of my best friends who I hadn't seen in a long time. And because it had been quite quick, I'd say probably that space about five months that I'd lost a lot of weight. And I'm mm-hmm. always small anyway. So as soon as it fell off me, I just looked sick. Yeah. Um, and my friend Claudia, who I'm actually seeing later tonight, um, and I wrote about this in the book, uh, she walked in and took one look at me and said to my boyfriend, um, what is wrong with Eve? Why is she so sick? Is she not eating? Wow. And um, The first of your friends to do that? Yeah very very like kind of obtusively and like yeah. you know without any qualms and uh not worried about offending anyone and my other well, friends who were very protective of me were really annoyed and kind of said I think she was bang out of order it was your birthday it wasn't right to say anything it just made you worry and then she felt really guilty oh and to this day I've always said to her it was the best thing that any friend ever did for me that's amazing it- because you be, people don't know what to say friends mm. relatives and actually a good good for you for hearing people and mm. and actually you you part of you really does want someone to notice Absolutely, sort of pull you up so you can have a different conversation about it instead of just you and your body and your mind. Yeah, completely. And for somebody, I think who you really, and I think also it plays into that kind of you know wanting to um, fit in. That mm-hmm. you know, once you've got somebody on the outside who you've always kind of you know aligned yourself with and dressed similarly to, and you feel comfortable, you know, you're very similar in that way. Saying to you, you look weird. There's yeah. something not right. Yeah. It does make you think, you know, if, if if it's not your health you're worried about, if you're somebody who cares about the way you look, people are suddenly saying you look, there's something odd about the way that you look. And that does play into, I mean, whether it's right or, or wrong, a certain area of my anxiety, I guess. And so I, I started to really, really worry. Um, and that, yeah, I mean, I always say to her that I think that it was the best thing that anyone could have done because it really made me think, okay, I, this isn't okay. And, 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 you know, she knows me incredibly well and, and has known me for years and years and, um, and just felt that something wasn't right. And I, and I listened. Um, so did you then go into treatment because you found that you couldn't even eat the little snacks that your, mm, your mum, that you'd promised your mum you'd eat? Mm, well, um, it would have been simple if, if that was the case, <laughs> but it's the NHS. Uh, Indeed. I, um, so the first appointment I had with the doctor where they couldn't do the arm, the blood pressure machine, blah, blah, blah. He said, I'm worried about you, but I was clearly very thin, clearly had an eating disorder. Um, he, given that I I remember saying to him at the end of that point, because he said to me, you're, you're very thin and you probably need to eat more. And I said, like any good anorexic girl, I said, yeah, sure. Um, (laughs) and he said, I'd try chocolate milkshakes uh you know anything else that's fattening anything he said anything that the doctor tells you not to eat usually you should eat right um which is great advice for yeah. Alexia. Wow. um and I was like okay and then I said oh and what about the gym and he said oh you should probably leave the gym for a few weeks and I said okay and I left and I called my mum and I cried and said I think I'm you know I'm too thin and blah 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 mm. um and she then said I want you to make another appointment with the doctor uh, that same doctor and see him again in a couple of weeks. So I 
tried to make another appointment and I think I couldn't see him for another four weeks or something anyway and then the, by the time the, I mean the problem with that with eating disorders is you know a week is so precious especially with anorexia yeah for sure and you have to act so quickly and especially if things are already that ingrained that when you're trying to eat more you find you can't at that point you know you need extreme intervention and any weight any delay is just massively scuppering your chances of long-term recovery or making it much harder so there was there was just delay after delay and I um eventually when we went to see the doctor a second time my mum said I'm coming in with you so she came with me and he said oh yes it's strange I don't know why you've lost all this weight maybe we should do some blood tests and didn't ask me any questions about food didn't ask me any questions about anxiety my mental health nothing and my mum said to him I think she's got an eating disorder and he said oh well yes I mean your body weight would be classed as anorexic um you've lost about 16 percent of your body weight so casual Mm, yeah I mean he had not a clue you could tell he just didn't it was like you know he was diagnosing something that was seen in one rare you know obscure medical journal it was like he had no clue what it was didn't know what to do and then started proceeded to google eating disorder services in the local area on his computer screen and this is like in north london you know it's not like you know and when when was this was this five ten years ago this was, yeah, it would have been about five, okay. uh, about five years ago, five okay. and a half years ago, um, but not not that long ago. Yeah. And I, I certainly hear stories from people it's happening today. Um, and uh, yeah, so so my mum then kind of pushed and said, "Well, I've done my research, and I know that there's a, there's a hospital down the road that has a specialist unit, and maybe you should refer her there." So my mum literally had to guide the treatment. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there thinking, "What's going on?" Um, and, uh, and I got referred, but there was a waiting list, as there always is. So uh, I was told that the waiting list would be somewhere between a month and three months wow. for an initial appointment. Um, wow. So my mum then was, at this point, completely desperately worried and got in contact with a friend she knew who had recommended I see somebody privately, a therapist privately, that, thank God, my mum could afford to pay. Yeah. So I went to go and see this private woman who was fine, but, you know, didn't really make much difference to anything. Right. Um, and it was the problem with private treatment, I find, is it's a very disjointed approach. So the gold standard for eating disorders, which I'm sure you know, is mm. a, a dietetic input from a specialist dietitian, um, psychiatrist who can offer medical help and prescribe medication and yeah. a um psychologist or uh you know cbt specialist who can help you to deal with the difficult thoughts um and so my mum was told that this was what you needed so she found me so separately so i saw a psychiatrist and i also saw a psychologist and i also saw a dietitian and they all had worked with each other before in various clinics but they were private so they operated independently and Although in theory you would get what you'd get in an NHS place, it really didn't work. It was it was all over the place. I'd have one appointment one week and then another appointment two weeks later with another one, and there was a miscommunication and and all this time that's going on, I I just couldn't I couldn't put on weight. I still wasn't putting on weight. I was losing weight. In fact, were you still working? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So so did you? Um, I've just got my eye on the clock here. I could speak to you for hours. 
Uh, did you, and God, love your mum. How brilliant is your mum? She is pretty awesome. Yeah, Fantastic. Yeah. So, okay, so obviously there's, it's all very disjointed. Nobody's talking to anybody else. Mm. So there's no coherence about mm. you. Mm. Did you sack it all off and voluntarily enter into a treatment program? So um, I'd say probably about a month and a half after I had been seeing these various people, um, I got a call from the uh, the eating disorder service locally who said that they wanted me to come in um, for uh, an initial consultation. And I went in for the initial consultation. They weighed me there. And I thought that, that, that it would just be you know an outpatient thing, not going uh, they said that my weight was so low that they wanted me to be admitted almost immediately as a day patient. Right. Um, so I'd have to go in for a day patient program that could last up to six months. I'd have to quit my job. Wow. Um, but they wanted me in immediately because I was so ill. I refused and said, I'm not doing that. I can get better on my own. I want to do outpatient treatment. Um, wow. was completely indignant about it. And, uh, a couple of weeks went by and they basically called and said, look, if you don't come on to this program right now, we're going to admit you to the hospital. You, you have to be an inpatient on the ward. Um, and that was always the kind of threat that obviously I wanted to avoid. So we kind of realised that I had no choice really. So I had to quit my job. I just had to say to my boss, who was amazing. Um, it was funny, funny enough, I was working for a um, – it was like a, a women's, uh, like inspirational women's charity. So okay. a, called the Female Lead, where they uh, they like promote female role models for the younger generation. And they right. that we, we were working on a book of fifty amazing women to teach women that you can achieve anything you want to achieve. So it was very, it was great because my boss was incredible. She used to be the editor of Girl Talk magazine. Okay, cool. Um, and she she said, no, absolutely, you have to go. That's fine, kind of thing. Um, and yeah, and then literally two days later, I quit my job. And two days later, I was on this day program, um, which was lo- which was brilliant. Actually, it was really good. It was terrifying, but it was really good and um, really kind of nurturing. And the uh, nurses there had such insight. You really felt they understood you. And it was like back to back. Obviously, you'd have to have lunch and you'd have to have two snacks, but there was back-to-back CBT, mindfulness, um, after-meal therapy. So you would talk and it was a really small group. It was only five of us. Mm. And everyone was really kind of motivated for recovery. So they only choose very specific patients to go on this group therapy. Um, That's very important. Incredibly important. I've never heard anybody say that. That's fantastic mm. that you experienced that. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was wonderful. And then <laughs> it only lasted for a week, unfortunately, um, because I was essentially kicked off and put onto the ward um, because I, I think my body had got to such a state where I just it was really, really hard for me to gain any weight. So um, I, uh, I had to go into the inpatient unit, and the inpatient unit was very different. <laughs> wow. Okay, from, we're just going to take else. a quick break. You're listening to This Food Thing with me, Gemma Richards. Welcome back to This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Eve Simmons. She's just entered day treatment, which was going fantastically. And then because she couldn't put on weight, uh, she was then put onto a, a ward as a full-time patient, which we have surmised was a completely different ball game. 
Can you just briefly talk about that, Eve? Yeah, I won't go into too much detail because I know some people it could be kind of re-traumatising. But essentially, you know, if you imagine one flew over over the cuckoo's nest, um, wow. wasn't too dissimilar to those really? experiences. Yeah, really, 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 really awful. Gosh. Um, and just completely uh, not conducive to any type of recovery which is why lots of those patients ended up coming back in months later um it was essentially a you know feed you up to get you out and with with very little emotional support did you yeah did you give in because you wanted to get out as quickly as possible or did you not have the energy at first that was that was the case but it's it's remarkable honestly it it kind of is like a very physical experience that yeah once you start eating your brain almost has to be manipulated to be okay with those changes because mm-hmm. there's nothing that you can do. You have no, you have no other choice. Yeah. And that kind of pushes you to carry on doing it. And um, after a while, it just, it's like almost like exposure therapy. After a while, it's not so scary. And you realize I've been doing this for five months and I've put on a bit of weight and actually, you know, the world hasn't exploded. <laughs> yeah. And it, how long were you in there for? Uh, I wasn't in there for that long. It was about six weeks. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. Long enough, right? Long enough. Long enough. And then I, I went back onto that lovely day program afterwards for a bit, and then um, and then eventually went back to work, probably too soon. But uh, uh, and then continued my recovery afterwards in the in the community, as they say. And so, the, yeah, indeed, in the community. And so, which brings us really to the point that you mentioned at the beginning when we first started talking of of nine months food has been a friend so Mm. we've just whizzed past that last bit haven't we Mm. where obviously you yes you were still recovering Mm. talk to me about uh congratulations by the way Uh, it's not an easy thing to do and you do you find that you just get that thing of just it's just enough to be alive isn't it the fact that you've overcome it come it all everything's a joy Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously not all the time. You know, things are annoying, BT, <laughs> things like that. I was say, maybe a year ago I would have said that, but right now. Yeah. But you get this, this, this kind of, uh, you know, there's like money, there's goodwill in the bank and you get mm. this, uh, this, this lease of life, which is fantastic. Um, just talk to me a little bit about your book, which sounds fascinating. So the effects of the male gaze or the patriarchy, mm. male patriarchy on the female appetite Yes. So I um I wrote my first book with my co-author Laura um a uh-huh. couple of years ago uh, and that was a, a very kind of top line scientific look at all of the very current myths and rubbish around diets and women's bodies and you know trying to answer all the questions that we m- may have googled at some point um and and kind of help young women especially notice uh, to realize that a lot of those things are rubbish and that they should just eat whatever they want when they want and not worry about it too much um and I, I always felt with that when I was researching and writing that there was a kind of undercurrent that I wasn't quite getting to and I always had other questions sort of I wanted to know why things were the way they were and why do we, but why do we think that we should go to the gym like where's the gym come from and why is it that it's mainly women that are being encouraged to go to the gym. And why is it that it's mainly women that are being encouraged to wear sexualized, you know, workout gear and um, that there's this kind of strange pornographic element to it. What's, what's that wrapped up in? And, and um, so I started kind of looking into, I guess the, the, the summary is why we are also, excuse my French up about food. Yeah. Um, 
and realise that that obviously, as is the answer to many of women's problems in today's society, it is the patriarchy that is to blame. Um, but obviously, that's a much too simplistic answer. So, uh, yeah, I started looking at everything from religion and um, biblical texts and um, the interpretation of biblical texts kind of 2000 years ago uh, to uh, the kind of beginnings of, of um fashion as it is today um, and how different clothes and uniforms, how they've changed over the past, uh, you know, 300 years and how that has um, uh, informed the way that we, uh, we refer to our own bodies and see our own bodies and changed the way that our relationships with our own bodies and then how that's kind of interlinked with food. So there's a, there's a lot of, of different themes um, and it is a bit of a minefield and I'm, I'm kind of feel like I'm, teeny tiny insect climbing up a mountain at this point but for uh, sure for sure but no it's it's super interesting and, I, and my hope is that you know what one thing that I really found in my recovery one thing that was um really valuable to me was information right. um, and education and yeah. you know I remember from a very young age walking past my mum's bookshelves and seeing Susie Orbach's Fat is a Feminist Issue and kind yeah. of rolling my eyes and thinking yeah yeah well you know weird books that mum's got <laughs> and and when I read that the sort of first year into my recovery so many things just it was like a bit of a light bulb moment to use a horrible cliche I, I so many things kind of fell into place and I really felt that okay this is a problem that's way beyond me um and I guess you know having a passion for women's health and now writing a lot about women's health in my day job I I'm just kind of always angry about how women the treatment of women is always very different to the treatment of men and how these ideas have made things in this respect incredibly difficult for women. And, you know, there's that classic kind of situation if you think of a date that you've been on um, with a, in a kind of heterosexual relationship. And if you've got a man and a woman and you'll look at the menu and I'm sure that the man will not be thinking, well, I'm sure in most cases a man will be thinking, what do I want to eat? What am I hungry for? And the woman will be thinking, what can I eat that is going to make me look sexy? Or what can I eat that isn't going to make him think I'm a pig? Or what can I eat that's going to make me look attractive? Yeah. Um, and I just, it's kind of that dynamic that I really yeah. want to get to the bottom of and understand. Because I think that that underpins so much of how we interact with food and how we view our appetites. Um, I, I agree with you. And also the mm. dynamics are divisive, aren't they? And they're about separation. Mm, and absolutely. exclusivity and actually it's about us we're all in it together yeah and, and completely. yet and yet we keep individualizing everything um mm. and I think eating disorders are very good at that and that's also a very they're like quite a clever metaphor for that on many levels yes completely and also for the not you know there's what kind of I think it's estimated around two million people who have eating disorders under diagnosed and diagnosed in the country and that's kind of big enough but then yeah. on top of that you've got a lot of people I would say the majority of women who on some level at some point in their life will have a complicated relationship with food and won't be able to just eat because they're hungry for something it will be mixed up in so many different messages that are most of them are nonsense messages that have come from a place of complete um either kind of like farcical biblical narratives from 2000 years ago that aren't relevant to the current day yeah. and debatable whether they're even based on fact. Um, yeah. 
And then, you know, also, again, kind of nutritional and science myths that are peddled by companies that are basically trying to earn a living and make, make huge profits, which indeed they do. And it angers me that women have been subject to this. And I think that my, now that I, I thankfully have my kind of peaceful relationship food, with food back, Obviously, there are still things that are never going to be the same. You know, I'm never not going to be able to know how many calories are in things because once you learn that, you can't unlearn that. And the thing that I always felt was that I was so privileged and lucky to have a childhood and most of my teenage years having a completely carefree relationship with food, eating whatever I wanted and loving it and not intellectualizing anything. And I realized how goddamn precious that is now. And I was angry at myself that I had sacrificed that. Um, And I think I want everyone to know that that should not be taken for granted um, and that that is much more important for your, your, your health, physical and mental health, and will sustain you far better for the rest of your life than having a few months where maybe you sit fit into a size eight jeans. Um, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Do you know, um, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. I have a, a final question. Which is, if, if you were going to an island, which five foods would you take with you? You can go to any island, any climate. You've got a store cupboard with salt and pepper and bits and pieces, but what would you take with you? Oh, God. Can I have a week <laughs> to think about this? No, you um, can't. You've got about 20 seconds. Okay. Okay, let me think quickly. Is it, is, are we talking like fully prepared meals? Or well, some people cheat. You can't take a menu from a restaurant or a supermarket aisle. But I okay. guess I'll let you take a prepared meal. Okay, great. Well, in that case, five things, right? I would have, um, so my favorite restaurant, which is the Palomar in um, Soho, yeah. uh, used to do, they no longer do it, unfortunately, a polenta, which is like a, it's like a creamy mushroom polenta. And oh my God, it's to die for. <laughs> That's um, like your porridge. Yeah. It's like, okay. exactly. They stopped doing it now, which is very upsetting. Okay. But, um, polenta. Yeah. So I'd have that. Yeah. Um, I would probably have some, or I would have my fiance Will's um, caponata. Okay. Um, which is delicious. So I'd get him <laughs> to make me a big batch of that. And I'd take it in top, lots of Tupperware. Um, I would have pistachio ice cream. And I would have. You've got two more. You've got polenta, mm. you've got caponata, you've got pistachio ice cream. Oh, I've got to have some smoked salmon bagels. I'll have to have a smoked salmon bagel just for my mother. Okay. Um, and maybe um, I'm on an island. What do I want? Maybe I'll have, uh, maybe I'll have, do I want a pizza? Maybe I'll have some sort of, what pizza do I want? Oh, I'd, oh okay. I'd go to, I'd get one of the pizzas from, um, from uh, one of the stalls in, um, Minori in Italy on the Amalfi Coast, which is where nice. I went my last holiday, and that's where we had our pizza. Nice. So, yes, I'll do that. It couldn't be and a It'll probably be something relatively plain, like a margarita yeah, yeah, some yeah, olives yeah. You, or something. You and me both. Mm. So, you're running a restaurant on your island, so I'm definitely going to come to your island. Thank you so <laughs> much. Um, it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure. Thank you very much, Eve. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know your favourite bit from this episode. Let me know on Instagram at This Food Thing Podcast or join us again in the next episode.